turn with me, if you have a church Bible, uh, to page 977. Uh, We're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. And if you have a church Bible, that's on page 977, I believe. Tell me if I'm wrong. Now this is... This is a really significant passage in the New Testament. One, uh, one commentator described this, one uh, preacher, the, uh, famous preacher in the 20, 20th century, uh, a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, described this as one of the peaks in the Christian experience. He described a, a level of trepidation as he looked at this passage and sought to preach on it because he recognised that the kind of work that this passage d- is describing is, in a sense, Uh, beyond uh, human description. At one point, towards the end of the passage, uh, he talks about a love that that surpasses knowledge. A sense of knowing something that you can't know intellectually. He's describing something of a profound experience and work of the Holy Spirit. But to understand this, we really need to uh, understand the context that Paul's speaking to. See, Paul has just given, and some of you were here over the summer when we looked at this, a great vision of who the Christians are together, who the, what the church is. At chapter 2, he talked about the church as the household of God. They become one new man. And he uses this description to describe the church as the holy temple of God, that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in the people of God. And as you see in your mind's eye, this picture of a holy temple there's a sense to which we feel a little bit intimidated. Many of us wouldn't relate to that description of a kind of beautiful, holy temple. There's a sense of intimidation. And there's the natural question that we'll ask when you ask, when you hear that, is how will the people of God live out this calling to become the holy temple? How will they be different to how they were before? How will they live such a different lifestyle as compared to their old lives? And Paul's first thought is not, I need to give you more teaching to understand how you'll become the people of God. It's actually, after a kind of brief digression at the beginning of chapter 3, it's this prayer. This prayer is Paul's hope for how the people of God will become everything that God has called them to be. So I want to read it to you, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll unpack it together. So Ephesians 3. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And the object there is is saying the, the length, the breadth, the height and depth of the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we tremble at your word together. We bow, we, we bow before you like Paul and say, Lord, we need this strength that he describes. We need your work in our hearts. We want to welcome your work. I want to ask that you would come and illuminate in our hearts what it means to be transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Come and teach us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this abundant love that you've revealed. As we dwell on this love, Lord, would you reshape us? Would you reshape our hearts and minds? Would we be captured again by your love? Amen. Amen. So the very essence of what Paul is describing here is a kind of inner strength. You see the repetition of the word strengthen throughout this passage. Paul's great hope is that the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer will strengthen them. So he's talking about a deep work into the very essence of who they are. Kind of a a spiritual surgery, for want of a kind of analogy. Saying his his hope is that the Spirit will work in their inner being, their heart, which is always in the the New Testament a kind of description of their inner person, their emotions, their feelings, their, their desires, their will saying, I'm praying for a deep work in, in your, that would reshape your hopes, your desires, and your emotions. Really, this morning, I want to unpack Paul's prayer for strength. Before we unpack how he does this, I first of all want to say why he does this. Why this is so vital. Why we need this prayer for strengthening. And then I want to take you to how. I want to really look at the two emphases that Paul has for us. One, that the Holy Spirit wants to come and transform you from the inside. He wants to reshape your inner life. I also want to show you how the Holy Spirit wants to reveal the love of Christ to you. That you need to be rooted and grounded in this great love that Paul describes. That that is the, an absolute requirement for the Christian life to be the people of God that he's called us to be. As we do that, I want us to see something of the full extent of the transforming work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. But before we do that, I want to say, well, why is this inner strength so relevant to us? Why is it important that we look at Paul's prayer this morning? I want to give you a few reasons. First of which is, for some of you, perhaps for many of you, the Christian life feels difficult. The Christian life feels uh, like a set of failed resolutions, it's now the 19th of January. Maybe some of you can relate. You, you, you started the year. You said, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to um, you know, stop doing this. I'm going to start doing that. 19 days later, you feel like you want to give up. You've already failed. You maybe you've resolved to avoid a certain sin. You want to cut something out of your life. But you feel defeated by that battle. The Bible puts it in incredible terms. He talks about returning to your sin like a dog returns to its vomit. And some of you know that sensation of going back to the thing that you had committed not to do. And yet, try as you might, you feel defeated in that battle. You feel like a failure. You're not the man or woman you want to be. And actually then, when you hear this this call to holiness, you hear this great vision of becoming the holy temple of the living God that Paul had had just given them in Ephesians chapter 2, it doesn't excite you, it doesn't fill you with joy, instead it crushes you. You kind of feel like, 
Yeah, maybe that's for some other type of Christian, but it's not for me. And yet this passage is about relocating the hope for the Christian life. Not in our strength or ability to follow Christ on our own, but instead in the work of the Holy Spirit. God himself at work in our hearts. Actually, it should really give you a, radically new, a radical new hope for obedience and endurance in the Christian life. I want to show you how the Holy Spirit wants to make you the people you've been called to be. I think this also speaks, by the way, to the non-Christian. If you're not here and you're not a Christian and you think, I could never become a Christian. When I think about the requirements of what it means to be, follow Christ, that feels just absolutely impossible. And I want to say, if you understand that, you've understood something about the Christian faith. It is absolutely impossible in your own terms to be obedient to Christ. That's the kind of starting premise of the Christian life. Actually, you realize that when you become a Christian, something significant happens in your life that changes the very nature of who you are and changes your um, ability to follow Christ's demands. So, first of all, Christian life feels difficult. I think this, this prayer also speaks to our spiritual apathy. Many of us, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, will we'll recognize that the greatest problem in our spiritual lives is not a lack of knowledge, it's not a, knowledge, um, a kind of lack of awareness of how to do the Christian life, but it's a sense of spiritual apathy, a lack of hunger for God. Many of us lack any sense of desire or desperation for the work of God, for the power and the presence of God in our lives. I think this is actually the real reason behind our prayerlessness. Prayerlessness, you know what I mean? Our lack of prayer. You know, I don't know if, you, if you've ever... Um, I don't know if you've ever been through a busy period in your life and you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I'm just so busy, I'm, I've fallen out of the routine of spending time with God each day. I know when I'm, when I'm kind of settled and I have more time, then I'll get back to it. And then you go on holiday and you don't pray. And you think, well, hang on a minute, I thought my problem was that I didn't have any time. And then suddenly I've got all the time in the world and actually suddenly prayer doesn't just erupt out of my life. It speaks that actually your problem is not a problem of time management, although some of you may have that problem as well. The problem is one of hunger one of spiritual apathy. And as we immerse ourselves in Paul's prayer here, we'll see that he has a radically different attitude and expectation of the work of, of the Holy Spirit in his life. I think you can't but help but uh, see, when you, when you kind of get really close up to his vision of God's love and power, you can't help but be changed by it as a result. And thirdly, I think, it's because, our, our, actually, when we look at this, what Paul's describing here, this inner strength, this work inside ourselves that he wants to do, actually, you'll see that this is something that our culture is crying out for. Maybe you're not a Christian here and you think, what relevance does this have for me? Surely this is to Christians? And it is written to Christians. But what Paul is describing here, actually, I think is what our culture really lacks. You see, you can see this in the plethora of self-help books and podcasts and all sorts of different resources that people are, are, are getting their hands off. I think one, read, one uh, man I, I read said it's something like 800,000 800, or so uh, self-help books on Amazon. And, 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 and I'm sure you can go and do your own research and see just that, that there's so much that we're looking for tools to order the inner life. You know, we've been told for, for uh, this generation at least, but for many years we've been told that when we have desires, we just need to act on them and respond to those desires. If it feels good, do it. 
So we've been told to kind of just let, uh, let go and follow those desires. And then, of course, we find ourselves being ruled by those desires, being controlled by those desires. And so the generation is, our generation is kind of crying out for ways to control our desires, whether that be um, kind of self-mastery, productivity hacks, uh, concentration hacks. How do I, how do I uh, get back to focusing? Uh, diets or, or months of deprivation, you know, veganuary or dry January or whatever you're going to give up next. You're trying to control your desires. And Paul is, is speaking really about the key to self-mastery, the way that Christ wants to come in and reorder your inner life. Also, I think there's often in our culture um, a, a strong desire to try and establish a sense of self-worth, a sense of wanting to fight our insecurities. One of last year's bestsellers um, was The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. I'll let you fill in the blank. But my, it's, essentially, there's so many in our culture who are trying to escape the tyranny of being controlled by the opinion of others. Overcoming insecurities. Uh, ignoring that inner critical voice. That's the language that our culture speaks of. Pick up any book and it'll talk in those, those, around kind of the inner life and it'll talk in that kind of language. And again, I think what Paul is giving us here is actually the, the Christian antidote to this great challenge of our age. So Paul is giving us really a vision of how to grow up in the Christian life. How you have the courage, the strength, the perseverance to follow Christ. So then let's bring us on to, the, bring me on to my first point, really, which is you need to be strengthened. The great conviction that is driving Paul is that you need to be strengthened for the Christian life. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. The problem is that many of us, when we read this prayer, we don't share Paul's conviction. You might say, well, I'm not not against what Paul's asking for here. But it it, it doesn't grab you. You don't feel that same sense of, of desperation that you can see in Paul as he's kneeling before the Father. I think, again, we can see that in our lack of prayer. So first of all, we have to establish why do we need this? Why do we need this prayer, this strengthening, this work of Christ in our hearts? Well, firstly, I think we've forgotten how difficult the Christian life is. We've forgotten that the Christian life is a battle. The Christian will face three big enemies in their lives. Later on in chapter 6 in Ephesians, Paul will talk about the, um, the enemy, Satan, spiritual force of evil, seeking to tempt you and discourage you and throw fiery darts at you that will seek to uh, destroy that sense of um, peace with Christ. We want to teach you to discourage you and to lead you to give up. You're in a spiritual battle, whether you realise it or not. It's so easy to forget that. You face the, the, the enemy, so to speak, of the world. It's not that we're kind of somehow against the world, but we, we live in a world that is alien to us. We talked about this before Christmas, this idea that we're in a world that doesn't share our values. We're exiles. And so the Christian life will always be swimming upstream. There will always be a sense to which we have to have a kind of inner strength to be able to walk upstream. If you've ever walked up a river where the river's going the other way, you know it's not an easy thing to do. And of course, there's the battle within what the Bible describes as the flesh. Desires inside us that are contrary to Christ's will. We just take them for granted. So we need strength to endure in this battle, to face temptation, to face the experience of living in a fallen world where people have lots of different um, ideas to, to, the, to the kind of uh, different convictions to us and where we face the lies and attacks of Satan. And yet in all of that, we want to be still persevering after Christ at the end. 
Really, I think what this is describing is the Christian life is something of a superhuman calling. In fact, I think it really speaks to the impossibility of the Christian life. Think about the incredible level of self-mastery that's required as you seek to say no to those desires that feel so um, irresistible inside yourself. Whilst everyone else around you is saying yes. Well, think about just the picture of enduring faithfulness. The idea that Christ isn't just calling you to follow him now, but he's calling you to follow him for the rest of your life. Some of you uh, think about the idea of being married and are intimidated by the level of commitment that that would require. You think about the idea that I would have to continue to love and serve and and, um, commit to my spouse for the whole of my life. You think, that just feels too much commitment. (laughs) That just feels impossible. Many of you doubt your own ability to stay faithful to that commitment. Well, I think in a sense, what I'm saying is you need to have that same sense of of kind of almost... um, Intimidation is probably the wrong word, but a same sense of gravity about the lifelong calling to follow Christ. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And some of you don't feel this because you've minimised the Christian life. Your vision of the Christian life is too small. You understand the Christian life really is to basically following the same individualistic patterns of life as everyone else around us, living for yourself and your own goals, and you've sanctified it. Maybe you pray about it, maybe you kind of attach a kind of, almost a kind of spiritual veneer, but fundamentally you're, you're about the same kind of individualistic passions that you always were. I think what you miss is the fact that the Christian life is much more than that. There's an inherent outward focus to it, a willingness to lay down your life, to take up your cross Willingness to, to serve your brothers and sisters, to wait, a willingness to, to push in to others in, the, in pursuit of, of making much of Christ in the world. Our vision is too small. And really what I think we're speaking about is a fundamental complacency about the Christian life. Like the football team that, you know, every year, uh, FA Cup, uh, third round in January, uh, you get these massive football teams going to play a, a kind of non-league side. And, then, and, they, and, and they just kind of walk through, go through the motions, maybe they don't train so hard that week. And then there's always a kind of upset. There's always a, a great defeat of a, of a mighty giant by a kind of non-league team. There's a sense in which they've been complacent. They've misunderstood, they've kind of um, misunder, misunderestimated? Underestimated, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, they've underestimated the enemy they've underestimated the Christian life when you understand the full call of what it means to follow Christ I think you will want to join Paul on his knees before the living God I think the second reason why we don't feel the need for what Paul's describing here is because we have a radically different approach to weakness see we don't feel this need because I think in a sense we're denying our own weakness we live in a world that encourages or requires strength You see it in kind of what our vision of what a good leader is. And you think, well, it's someone who's strong, who knows their convictions, who's who's kind of able to ignore any other voices. And you need to be a strong person. You'll see, if you go on YouTube, whatever, you can see lots of videos of how to be strong, how to ignore the critics and all sorts of, uh, find that kind of strength. And almost intuitively, we want to be strong, not weak. So when we experience weakness, when we recognize our own frailty, we want to deny it. We want to try and muster up the strength to carry on. And yet Paul's taking precisely the opposite approach. The very posture that he's modelling for us in this prayer, kneeling before the Father, is one of dependence. He can admit his weakness because he's found the ultimate source of strength. 
You can see this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. It's like a, a possibly a struggle with sin, possibly a, a kind of suffering, a sickness. We're not really told, but he asked God to remove it. But this is God's response. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is able to admit his weaknesses, even to delight in them, because he's found the power to enable himself to persevere. Behind our prayerlessness, lack of prayer, sorry, behind our, our lack of prayer is a deep sense of self-sufficiency. I feel like we don't really need God because we've got it under control. We have it, and we're trying to summon up the strength in ourselves to continue. What this says is actually the complete opposite of that. If you feel weak, that's no bad thing. In a sense, the Christian should walk with a limp. A key, we should have a keen awareness of our own frailty. Not that we're forever introspecting and looking in and examining our weaknesses, but it causes us to look outward, look upwards in desperation for the work of the living God. This keen sense of weakness should push us to our knees. But the third thing, I think, which is probably most significant, the difference between why Paul is so willing to pray this and we are not, is because I think we lack Paul's conviction of God's power. As I consider Paul's attitude in in this prayer versus ours, I think it's because we don't share his expectation of the work of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is in no doubt of the overwhelming power of God. He describes it from the riches of his glory. There's a sense to which he kind of has an abundant, overflowing storehouse. Not literally, but you know the, the, the picture of one of abundant power and majesty. He has the overflowing ability to answer your prayers. Then in verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, some translate that infinitely, one who is able to do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. We don't share Paul's enthusiasm or expectation for the power of God. Maybe we've imbibed something of the cynicism of our age. We live like practical atheists with a belief in God, but actually no expectation that he's going to uh, be at work in our lives. And perhaps even more challengingly is Paul has the expectation that this power will be at work within us. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And many of you will doubt the work of God in your own life. You'll look at your life and say, have you seen my struggles? Have you seen the things I, t- I can't do? Then, um, if you see my own battle with sin, then how could you possibly claim that the Holy Spirit is at work in me? I think what you're doing is you're confusing the reality of, of, of sin, of temptation with the the lack of presence of God. You're right to be suspicious about your own heart. In Jeremiah, he talks about the human heart is deceitful above all things. We have a tendency to self-deception. We have all sorts of false desires. We'll be fighting the presence of temptation and sin till our dying day. But that doesn't mean that the power of God is not a work within you. Actually, all the more it means that we need that power at work within us. When you take these things together, a profound sense of our own weakness, a deep conviction of God's power at work within us, and a high vision of the call to follow Christ, we have ample reason to join Paul kneeling before the Father, calling out for the work of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and transform us. But what does this actually look like? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? Well, I want to really just talk you through two points. The first is you need inner transformation. 
you need inner transformation. The work of the Holy Spirit, we're not expecting something, you know, necessarily um, kind of all guns blazing, powerful encounter with God, although, of course, that's within our expectation for the church. But really, actually, what I think he's talking about is the, is the kind of the work of the Holy Spirit inside the believer's heart. In verse 17, Paul is describing the first goal of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. To understand this, you need to understand what does he mean by dwell? And you know, you think like if someone's dwelling somewhere, you think maybe they're staying somewhere for a while. But really what it's describing is a kind of settling down. Of taking over somewhere. You know, think about when you move into a new flat. And you move in and uh, still all the, the person who lived there before has left all their stuff there. It's still their own kind of uh, decorations on the wall. And, and, you, know, and you know, you're, kind of, you're staying there, you, but you, it doesn't really feel like it's yours. And then what happens over time, you get there and you start, you start to move all their stuff out, you start to take their decorations down, maybe you have the opportunity to repaint it or, or something like that. And eventually, you look around and you think, no, this is my home. This is, this is where I live. This has gone from someone else's home to my home. I'm dwelling here. I'm taking over this house. And that's something of the picture that, that Paul is describing the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the inner man, in the heart of the believer, that Christ wants to come in and take over every room in the house. He's talking about the, what your core, your emotions, your thought life, your desires. He's saying I, Christ wants to come in and remake all of that under his authority. Uh, the former Dutch prime minister and theologian, um, Actually, I forgot to put his name down. I think someone, will, someone will tell you later on. Um, <laughs> Cody looks like he's got it in his head. Um, Ab- Abraham Kuyper, sorry, uh, said this. Not as much consequence to you anyway. Um, <laughs> but at least you know I'm not lying. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not one square inch. There's not an inch, he says, that's not mine. And saying, actually, you know, Christ wants to come in and take over your mind. It's like saying, in what sense is Christ Lord of your life if he's not Lord of your thought life, of your emotions, of your desires? So too, Christ says, I want to come and bring that all under submission to me. And really what I think he's speaking about is the danger of an unconverted mind and heart. You kind of live in a partially converted state. You've given your life to Christ... But you've not surrendered your thought life, your emotions, your desires to Christ. And so what's happening is you're allowing a whole host of different um, thoughts and desires to dominate your thinking, to take over your heart and mind, which don't reflect the reality that you now find yourself in. You're now under Christ's authority, you're in his kingdom. And yet your mind and your heart and the thoughts and the passions of your heart do not reflect that new reality. Think about self-pity. How it's so easy that you feel hard done by, maybe things don't quite go your way, and you start chewing over your frustrations. You start to feel angry and bitter at the world. Maybe not at anyone in particular, but just a sense of kind of, I have not been dealt a good hand. You start to lament your own circumstances. You've lost sight of the goodness of God and his gifts to you. You're not walking in thankfulness, but in self-pity. Or anxiety about the future, how easy it is to, to start worrying over the, about the future, maybe your job prospects, or maybe your um, relationship status, or you start losing sleep, you start fixating, you start building yourself a plan as you go to bed at night, you're kind of thinking through all the different things you need to do to fix that solution in the future. And really what's happened is you've allowed anxiety to start to dominate your thinking. 
You've lost sight of the reality that Christ is sovereign. Well, Paul describes it in Ephesians 4. He describes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, of course, there's, there's some actions there he might be talking about, but he's also talking about an attitude. How easy is it? Someone wrongs you, someone does something against you, and you don't forgive them. And then slowly you start to chew it over in your mind, and maybe you start to nurse that wound, and you start to remind yourself constantly of what they did to you, and you're slowly, that unforgiveness is just building up in your heart until you can't speak to them. Or maybe, maybe you do speak to them, but in your heart you know that you've got resentment towards them. Maybe no one else knows. Maybe you, maybe you manage it by, by not talking to them, by avoiding them. But inside you're bitter to them. What you haven't realised is those desires, those feelings, that anxiety, the bitterness, the self-pity, don't belong in the house anymore. It's like there's a new owner who's come to take control. Christ has come in to live in that house, but the junk that was there from the old owner is still there. You need to get rid of that junk. You need to kind of do a house cleaning. Say, no, this stuff, these feelings, these emotions, they don't belong here anymore. There's a new owner of the house, and he's come to make it his own. The Holy Spirit wants to come in and do heart surgery in us, to replace old patterns of thinking, to replace anger with love, to replace anxiety with peace, to replace despair with joy, to replace self-pity with thankfulness. Christ wants to come in and take over and shape your thought life. Don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying you need to be unthinking robots, ignoring your emotions or thinking that emotions are bad things. Neither am I calling you to deny the presence of unhelpful desires and emotions in your heart. I take for granted that they will be there. No, what you need to do is take every thought captive in submission to Christ. We're bringing every thought, every emotion, every desire into obedience to Christ. In, In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What you have to ask yourself is, when I'm thinking this, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm allowing this thought, these different feelings or emotions to go through my head, do they represent, do they reflect the new reality that I found myself in? Do they reflect the fact that Christ is Lord? It requires a certain sense of brutalness. As that situation arises, as that thought crosses your mind, cut it off. Kill it straight away. Don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to, to circulate. Just, just get rid of it. And, you know, the, your boss comes to you this week and says, look, we're thinking about making some redundancies. Will you at that moment allow your fears to run away with you, to think about your financial security, to think about whether you're going to have a home, whether you're going to need to move out of London? Or will you at that moment say, no, I'm not going to fear my future because I follow and obey a Christ who is Lord of the, of the universe. I need not jump straight into fear at this moment. Or when that inner critical voice comes... Maybe you're about to give a presentation at work. Maybe you're about to do something you haven't done before. And you, you hear it, it says, you're rubbish. You're a failure. You might as well give up now. You can't do this. You, 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 know, you can't obey God. Say, no, those lies don't belong here anymore. And I just want to say, don't be surprised when this wrong thinking comes up. You know, our hearts are messy, deceitful. They're going to cut all sorts of different thoughts and and emotions are going to come up. Paul talks about needing to be renewed day by day. 
The inner, as the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is renewed day by day. So there's a sense that this is a constant work of the Holy Spirit coming to take control over every part of the inner life. But if you get this right, if you change your heart, everything else flows from that. So the Bible talks about the heart as the driver of, of your life, so to speak. What's going on in your mind, what's, what, what your emotional life is saying, what your desires are, will, will shape how you live, whether you kind of want them to or not. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're worried about money, if you're chewing over your lack of money, you're, perhaps you're anxious whether you're going to have enough this month or obsessing about getting a pay rise, that will make you a less generous person. Whether you kind of consciously do it or not, that fear, that anxiety about your finances will percolate out into lack of generosity. Or if you're an anxious person and you're, or maybe, maybe you're worried about what people think of you and you're always kind of obsessing about that, actually it will stop you from loving others. It will make, instead you will look at people as people to, be ple- uh, to make happy, so to speak, but actually you won't be focused on loving them. So they get, but if you get this right, change your heart, change those emotions, change those desires, it will work its way out in your life. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, we need to clean house, allow him to come in to all of it so that Christ truly dwells and when we're changed from the inside we have the strength to resist temptations and to persevere after christ but but paul is not just speaking about um a kind of only about the heart change here in this sense he's also talking about the great abundance of christ's love paul's other great emphasis here is that believers will be full of the love of god that they will be rooted and grounded in that love Now, there's an element to which what Paul is describing here is, in a sense, indescribable. He's saying, saying, would you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Well, how do you know something that surpasses knowledge? What he's saying is there's a sense to which what he's describing cannot be taught in a kind of intellectual way. There's a sense where he's describing something of the experience, the power, the majesty of God at work in your heart as he reveals the abundant love of Christ. So I just want to put that kind of caveat to what I'm about to say. But his conviction is that when you understand the love of Christ, it will have a transforming effect on the believer. And he talks about this, uh, this phrase, rooted and grounded in love. In verse 17. Yeah, that you being rooted and grounded in love. There's an assumption when you, we talk about love that it feels kind of fuzzy, it feels gushy. But yeah, actually, the picture is quite op- the opposite of that. There's pictures of rooted. Think about a large oak tree rooted in the ground with roots going right down deep that storms and winds can't prevail against that oak tree. It's standing because it's rooted. Think about a large building grounded with deep foundations going deep down. Saying people who have understood the love of Christ, people who've encountered and experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, people who've just understood this love are steadfast. They know who they are. They're not easily moved by the opinions of other people. And of course, this speaks directly to our insecurities. We live in something of an age of insecurity, the digital age where our lives are on show in all sorts of ways. And each one of those different mediums, those networks, etc., is an opportunity for people to express approval or disapproval of you. So we become obsessed with likes or clicks or swipes or whatever it is, ways that basically tell us we're valuable or not. And so we become, our happiness becomes uh, kind of controlled by the opinion of others. 
the reactions of others. It almost becomes like a kind of slavery to other people. Or others of us might just use our achievements and our accomplishments as a way of trying to convince the world that we are valuable, that we should be approved of. You'll know this will be true of you if, if when you do something and no one approves you, no one says, brilliant, great job, then you think, and you, and you feel disappointed by that. Actually, the answer is you weren't really doing it for, that, for, for the purpose, the, for kind of its own sake. You were doing it for the approval of others. What it's saying is that the believer is dead to these concerns. That they found a much more enduring love. A permanent love. A firm, unchanging love. Firm enough to be your foundation. See, the love of this world, the approval of other people, whether it's through digital medium or just you know, expressed in, in, in normal human life, it's conditional. Whether that be friendships or even romantic relationships. People leave us. You might be familiar with the, the term ghosting. You know, the kind of idea that you're in some kind of relationship and then people just, just walk away. Cody's nodding his head. I hope, <laughs> I hope that's not your experience. <laughs> There's a sense to which all of the loves of this world, the, people, the loves that we might chase after, are conditional. They're insecure. People can ditch you. But this love is certain. This love is inexhaustible. Paul's saying you can never plumb the depths of the love of Christ. It surpasses knowledge. You need the help of the Holy Spirit to even comprehend the majesty of Christ's love for you. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length. What he's saying is almost you need your muscles to be strengthened even to be able to carry this thing. How silly we are when we change ourselves, when we relax our convictions, when we try and shift what we're really about in the vain hope that someone might like us. When we've already received this abundant love that is almost immeasurable. Such a danger for the Christian to be controlled by the opinions of others. Because as we've spoken about at length, we live in a world where people have very different convictions and beliefs to us. Where the people around us don't think the way we do. So if you're worried what people think of you, if you're shaped by the opinions of others, then inevitably that will lead you to not follow Christ in some way, in some part of your life because you'll be affected by their approval, and you'll be running to their approval rather than running to the approval of Christ. So dangerous. What he's saying is the great antidote to those insecurities, the great antidote to that that almost intrinsic desire in each of us for this kind of love and approval is that we have found the most abundant, inexhaustible love in Christ. Saying Christ's love is a firm foundation no, there's a sense to which this is subjective, he's talking about an experience. But there's a sense to which Christ's love is absolutely, um, there's nothing subjective about the love of Christ in one sense. At the very centre of the Christian faith is Christ's death on the cross. It's a fact. It's a historical event. It's the event that you can look to when you maybe say, I don't, I've never experienced what you're talking about here. I have no frame of reference to, describe, to, to hang on to what Paul's describing when the Holy Spirit might reveal the love of Christ. But you know that he loves you because he died for you. There's no doubting that. The height, the width, the, you know, that's, in one sense, it's the cross. The height of Christ's love, the width of Christ's love. <laughs> Navigation was never my strong point. <laughs> so you have an absolute guarantee in the cross of Christ's love. It's, it's a firm foundation to which you can stand on. 
And the question is, have you rooted yourself in his love? Have you made Christ's love your foundation? Are you looking to Christ or are you looking to the approval of the world for your love, for the love that every human being needs? Ask any secular psychologist, any kind of um, different people thinking about childhood and all sorts of things. You'll know that the human being needs love, love for development. They talk about how if a premature child is, is uh, massaged, then they will grow further. They talk about the loneliness, a lack of relationships in your life will have all sorts of negative health consequences. It's written into the very fabric of the human being that we need love. Why? Because we were made for a loving relationship with with the one who made us. You don't graduate from this. Some of you, when you think about this, this whole love business just feels very fluffy. Give me meat. Give me doctrine. Give me truth. Give me the hard stuff. Well, actually, my warning to you, the great danger is that you would become, it's not that you would become too focused on the love of Christ, but that you would grow cold. Revelation 2, uh, Jesus is speaking to the, uh, it's actually to the Ephesian church, I think, Um, and this is what he says to them, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. They've been faithful. They've been doing the right things. They've got, all the, they've got the obedience. Tick. But they're missing this love. Their hearts have grown cold. Just as Christ is not content with a kind of superficial obedience... So too, Christ is not content with just a kind of, um, just actions to obey him. He wants your heart. He wants to be the object of your affection. As you experience, as you encounter this immeasurable love of Christ, as your deepest, the deepest longings of your soul are satisfied, so your heart will be warmed towards Christ. This is the greatest antidote to the danger of your heart growing cold. But this is not just an introverted experience with Christ. This is not just for our sake. Actually, as you experience the love of Christ, as as your roots go deep down into the love of Christ, so this love becomes the fruit of your life. It's not simply enough to experience or glimpse this abundant love. It should profoundly reshape your affections and your life. As you, you know, think, think about what you take in will shape who you are. I don't know if you remember that quite not very nice drink called Sunny Delight. Uh, sometimes there were, there were stories, and I believe in the US, of people drinking so much Sunny Delight that they looked a little bit orange. Like, you know, like you might come out of a sunbed, you know, that kind of idea. And um, there's a sense to which what you, what you take into you will obviously shape who you are and how you live. And so here we're saying, actually, the Christian, as they put their roots deep down into the love of Christ, it will transform their heart. It will transform the way we relate together, It's why the the defining ethic of the church is one of love for one another. It's why this is meant to be a countercultural community of brothers and sisters laying down their lives for one another, not because it's just some good idea, because it flows out of the love of Christ. It's that same love that pushes us out into the world that means that we're not just kind of going through the motions of life, doing the things that everybody else wants to do, but adding a spiritual vineyard. No, we're, we're laying down our lives in sacrifice. Why? Because we've tasted, we've, we've, we've drunk from this unquenchable river of Christ's love 
And so it becomes who we are. It reshapes our heart and pushes us outward. Love, becomes the, love must be your motivation in the Christian life. A love for Christ and a love for your brother and sister. You know, please, don't do the, please don't serve on a Sunday out of, just out of duty. Please, you know, you'll, you'll quite quickly dry up and we won't, it won't, won't lead to flourishing. And instead, we become ruggedly determined to love others. There's a sense to which Christians are kind of pushing into the world. Even when we get rejected, we continue to love the people around us. Before we even dream of transforming our city, before we even dream of, of being the world changers that we want to be, we need our hearts to be changed for that purpose. You think about when Christ looked upon the crowd, he said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. A gut-wrenching change in his heart as he sees them and sees their need for, for him, that he's the good shepherd. There's a sense to which as we experience the love of Christ, our hearts are changed. And we, come, and we need to come before God and ask him to change our hearts. I want you to hear as we look and, and see this, this great prayer, we need to on one hand just see the, the great depth of transformation that God wants to do in our lives over time. Christ wants to dwell in your heart. He wants every thought and emotion to be brought under, under the obedience of Christ. He wants to reveal the abundant love of Christ to us. That we want to be strong and not kind of pulled this way or that way by, the approval, by our need for approval of others. No, we become the strong people of God. Strong in our desire to follow Christ. Strong in our ability to endure the rejection of others. And strong in our love for the people around us. But all of this begins with a sense of of hunger for God. That this passage, the only application, surely, or the first application, should be to join Paul on his knees. Hunger for the power of God to reshape our hearts. Should cultivate in us, asking God to cultivate in us a hunger for him. A willingness to say, Christ, I know there are parts of my life that I'm not opening up to you. There are parts of my heart that I've blocked off. I want you to come in and work completely. Not kneeling before the Father in some hope of some incredible transcendent spiritual experience, but just as a, sen- as a sense, as a mark of our independence on him, our need for him, our need for his work in our hearts. Before we worship, I just want to give us a space to do that, a space to become in quiet before the Lord. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. Perhaps some of you want to join Paul in this way, on your knees before the living God. Not as a sign that you're extra spiritually, extra specially spiritual. Not as a sign that you are expecting some uh, great feeling in this moment. But merely as a sign of our dependence on Christ. Our need for him to come and work in our hearts. This is our posture. This is where the Christian life is lived, on our knees. Let me just give you a moment of silence just to get in that posture, even if it's only in your heart. And then I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we want to come humbly before you and recognise our own weakness, our frailty, 
our need for your strengthening. Lord, we want to repent of not believing and trusting in your power to change our hearts. Lord, we want to come and welcome your work in our hearts. We want to ask with Paul that you would come and dwell in our hearts. That you would take every emotion, every desire... every thought that doesn't belong there and that you would bring it in submission to you. Lord, we want to confess that some of us have been content with too small a vision of your love. That we have been working out of a sense of duty or just a sense of this needing to be done. Our hearts are not full of your love. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would come and reshape our hearts. In this moment, but in in our whole lives, Lord, as we kneel before you each day, as we spend time in your presence, as we come back to your word day after day, Lord, we ask that you would reshape us, that you would be renewing us day by day. Lord, we express our need for you. We thank you for that great power at work within us. We say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We're desperate for you, Lord. We're desperate for you to take control of our hearts, to reshape us, to pour in your life. We say you are the one who has the words of eternal life. We worship you.